0: All right, I am fired up to get into the Word of God this morning. I got one week to rest, and so I'm ready to get uh, back into it. And I'm excited for this service in particular because the first one I have kind of a bookend where I got to keep it tight. Uh, This morning, you guys, I hope you brought a snack. Buckle up because we're going to be here, okay? We're going to hear from God's Word this morning. So let's read uh, Exodus 17, 8 to 16. God's Word says this, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Israel has fought many battles on many different fronts thus far, but have yet yet to face a physical hand-to-hand combat situation. They battled with the Egyptians for freedom, and God fought that war on their behalf through his miraculous hand in bringing about the plagues upon Egypt. They battled uh, from a few weeks ago, if you recall, they've battled from within, uh, grumbling against each other, grumbling against God, grumbling against God's servant Moses, and yet God provided for them water and food to sustain them. Now they battle hand to hand with Amalek. Uh, We approach this passage, when we approach any passage, aiming to understand how this teaching would have been received by the generations of Israelites that subsequently heard and read these words. This passage presented me, if I'm honest, with, with some difficulty in modern application. How do I take this battle scene and now apply it to the modern Christian in our context and time? How can this physical battle that Israel waged against a physical enemy be applicable in my time and place. It's important to make a distinction, and we're going to make a distinction this morning, at this point, in teaching a passage that encourages what we will call holy war. Okay, there's a holy war going on here. We're going to make two important distinctions about the battles that God's people have waged and the present battles that Christians are faced with. You see, because as Christians, we no longer draw a sword in advance of the kingdom. We don't bring about the kingdom by demanding it with a sword to someone's throat. Whereas Israel is marching to a physical destination, where is that? The promised land. The land that God has promised to them. Christians are indeed advancing a kingdom here and now. However, the advancement of the kingdom is in conquering the spiritual powers that oppose us. Our weapon is not the sword, rather our weapon is this, hear this, our weapon is the power of the proclamation of the gospel, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, through the power of God's Holy Spirit that is able to transform hard hearts, Romans 8.11. Those are the now tools that we have to advance the kingdom of God and civilization. And so it brings us to our first point this morning. We see a physical battle for Israel, a physical battle for Israel for Israel. We gain more understanding about the physical battle that Israel faces against Amalek if we draw on the history of these people and further information from other parts of the Old Testament. So we're going to draw for some other passages in the Old Testament. A bit of background, just quickly. Amalek descended from Esau, okay? We find that in Scripture. We know from Scripture that Esau gave away his birthright to his brother Jacob, his younger brother. Because of his hunger. Jacob later in Genesis wrestles with God and then he is given the name Israel. His life at that point forward after wrestling with God evidences transformation and it evidences faithfulness to Yahweh. He's a different person. And then from Jacob, Israel, the tribes descend and we're now presented with these people that are descendants of Jacob. We witness here generational animosity between the descendants of Esau, in this case Amalek, and the Israelites. In other words, a long-standing family feud, okay? And not like the game show on TV. This is a real feud. Death and blood is evident. Moreover, the Amalekites were not God-fearing people. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't fear him and they were barbaric. We draw that from a passage in Deuteronomy. Let's read. We're going to combine a passage here from Exodus seventeen eight, and then we're going to skip to Deuteronomy if you want to follow along in your notes. It says, then Am- Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim, and now skipping to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. Moses, reflecting on this passage that we are in says this remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were hear this faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So we get a little bit more detail about these people, and we get a little more detail about what they actually did to Israel as they were out in the wilderness. They didn't just attack them, but they attacked them from behind, and they attacked the weak, feeble people that were in the back of the party as they were walking and wandering. They prayed on the vulnerable, the weak, and the feeble lagging behind the group. Is that a noble thing to do? To pray on the people in the back who can't keep up? God executes His justice upon these enemies of His people. He displays His power... Through Moses and his partners, he has two partners here, or three partners, Aaron, Hur, and Joshua. Even though Israel fights physically, the passage makes it clear that this battle was won somewhere else. It was won where? On the hill, right? The focus of the passage is on Moses on the hill above his people holding up the staff with two partners standing by his side. The battle is won on the hill in the distance through the power of God, working in and through his people. Through the power of God, working through people. Moreover, the Lord promises to blot out these evil evil people from all existence. And also gives us a picture into the history of Israel that they will continually battle with Amalek. It says from generation to generation in verse 16. The last half of that verse says the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I've given you some references there. I'd encourage you this week to go through and study those and you'll see the history of Amalek and Israel a history that ultimately leads to the downfall of King Saul because God gives King Saul some instruction to eliminate this people group, and yet Saul disobeys God and allows the king of this people group to survive. Later on, King David will clean up his mess. And so the immediate understanding, we want to draw an immediate understanding out of this passage, grants us a picture of God's power working through Moses' leadership in unity with Aaron and Hur, and executed by the obedient hand of Joshua against a godless enemy who preys on the weak and vulnerable. Through this passage, the Israelites would have understood the power of God. They once again witnessed the power of God at work. And the importance also of people, of each other, of people working together for a common mission. And they've been empowered within this mission by God himself. But ultimately, this physical battle of the Israelites pictures the spiritual battle of Christians pictures a spiritual battle of Christians. We have to make this distinction, church, because if you look at history, although the church has done many, many good things, good things have been done in the name of Christ, but also history is marred by some negative things that have been done in the name of Christ. We only need to look to the 11th to the 13th century to find an example. Do you guys know what happened in those time periods? an era called the Crusades, a time where the name of Christ was used in conjunction with the sword to battle Muslims, and the two sides fiercely worked against each other and killed each other. Is that the way that we advance the kingdom of God? No. And so we have to make this distinction between the physical battle that was waged by Israel and the spiritual battle that we wage as Christians. Again, we don't demand that people submit to Christ as Lord and Savior with the sword to their neck, but rather by the power of the gospel. So our second point, we have a spiritual battle for Christians. Paul makes this very clear. I want to pause... Because I find it interesting when God does these types of things. I placed a verse of Scripture from Ephesians 6.12. Do you guys recall a little bit earlier in our worship gathering, what was our Scripture reading for this week? But Ephesians 6.12 to 13. If I'm honest, I hadn't gone and looked at what the fighter verse was. When we met and went through and talked about announcements and the Scripture reading, I said, just read the next one up in the app. It just so happened to be the same one that we're pointing to in this passage. It's amazing when God does those things. Paul makes it clear that we're waging a spiritual battle in Ephesians six twelve. He says, "For we do not wrestle against what flesh and blood, physical, right, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the." cosmic powers over this present darkness what paul is saying is that there is something much more evil and dark behind the evil that we see in people in creation in the world he says against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places there's a war going on around us Now, I want to give a couple points of caution. Okay, it can be tempting for us to slip into a mindset that we are to take up arms against a physical enemy, but again, Paul instructs that our battle is not against a physical enemy, but rather the spiritual darkness that is behind the physical subjects. Okay? In, in Revelation, John is given this vision, and, and in Revelation we get this sense that the darkness behind this is called the spirit of Babylon. Okay, the spirit of Babylon. Here, we see it in the spirit of Amalek. There's a darkness behind what these people are doing. Now, I want to give two points of caution as we walk through this passage. Okay, we're talking a lot about the spiritual battle of Christians, but here's, here's two points of caution. Don't completely disregard the physical. Okay, we can't divorce, completely divorce The two. We can't just say everything's spiritual, okay? Or we fall into a trap of what. Uh, the Greeks interpreted things as. Everything was just a spiritual existence. The physical didn't matter. But to a Christian, both matter. But we're not waging a war on a physical level with a sword. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? So we care about the physical creation. We care about our physical community. It's why we're going to reach out to our community in a month on a Saturday and give out backpacks to people who are less fortunate. Because we care about this place. We want people to prosper in Bullock County. We want kids to get a good education in Bullock County. We want to have a good noble government in Bullock County. Okay, we care about physical things. So that's one point of Caution, don't completely disregard the physical. Because the church has cared about the physical, there has been much good that has been done in the name of Christ. We've seen advancement in medicine in the name of Christ, advancement in education in the name of Christ, advancement in civilization in the name of Christ that are good things. Another point of caution is that we, we don't get too passive about some of the physical battles that go on in the world i'll give you an example we don't want to take this to mean that we we do not stand and fight for those who are oppressed and vulnerable especially by a moral morally deranged enemy think only of hitler okay Now, in that time period, if you're familiar, there was a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany who took some extreme stances against Hitler, which ultimately led to Bonhoeffer losing his life. But Bonhoeffer, interesting enough, who who was a pacifist, he didn't really believe in war, but he believed strongly enough about what Hitler was doing to the Jews that he was taking part in a scheme, a plan under the surface to assassinate Hitler to take him out, okay? That is a time where I would say it was a good thing that a Christian stood up and, and fought because they were fighting for the vulnerable who could no longer defend themselves. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. So those are two points of caution. Now, I want us to look at three points of application for us in our everyday life, an application in the church that we can draw out of this passage, And we ask this question, how does this passage relate to me or to the church? How does this relate to my life as a follower of Jesus? The first point, empowerment and obedience. We draw that application out of this passage, empowerment and obedience. You see, in this passage, we're introduced to a new and crucial character. His name is Joshua. We're not given much of a background on Joshua because we can assume that that the people that were receiving and reading this writing knew a lot about Joshua already, so he's just kind of introduced on the scene. We can assume that they knew this character well. If you do not know Joshua, to put it succinctly, he's the man that will ultimately lead the Israelites where? To the promised land. Verses 19 to 10. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek with, while Aaron, while Moses, Aaron, and her went up to the top of the hill. Now I think it's evident, I don't think we need to read this into the text, but I think it is, it is evident that Joshua doesn't just show up at the, at the click of some fingers, okay? Moses, I believe, has been investing into Joshua and raising him up. He's been pouring into him that as, as the future leader of God's people. We also see that Joshua is obedient. He listens to Moses, The passage says, Moses said to Joshua. So we see empowerment there that Moses now is is entrusting Joshua with a monumental task to defeat their enemy, right? Okay, the weak and the feeble are getting killed in the back of the group. And Moses is empowering him to go out and basically save his people. So he empowers Joshua Then the passage says, Joshua did as what? As Moses told him. So we see obedience. We see Joshua heeding the wisdom of Moses to go out and do as Moses had instructed him to. Okay, let's get into the story here a little bit. This is the first time that they've physically, like hand to hand combat. Pretty scary, right? These are a bunch of slaves coming out of Egypt. They probably don't have much military training. We have these people that have been living out in the wilderness that are attacking this group from behind. And Moses is like, hey, go get some dudes and go out there and fight them. I'm going to stand up on the hill and pray for you. Right? What does Joshua do? He goes and does what Moses tells him to do. Christians now... This passage pictures relationships that equip and raise up others. Okay, we see the church in a passage like this. We see empowerment and obedience. We see discipleship relationships. Joshua had to have learned from somebody. I'm confident that he learned from Moses. And Moses then trusted Joshua with the mission to go out and protect his people, while Moses, it's so beautiful, is in the distance on a hill praying praying for his disciple. The passage pictures relationships that equip and raise up others, empowers others. It pictures the younger or less mature, heeding the wisdom and guidance of those who are more mature. We have a picture for us of what we call discipleship as the local church. Our spiritual battle is rooted in making disciples who follow and obey Jesus, who follow and obey the Word of God, who follow and know the Word of God. And that's why, church, we have to have a diverse body. We have to have a body that loves and honors those who are more mature than us. And we have to have More mature people that are willing to invest in the younger people. And we have to have people who are willing to listen to each other and grow together and be on mission with one another. We can't have a church that says we're dedicated to 25 to 30 year olds. And that's it. No, the body of Christ is diverse. Because we need each other. We have a picture of our second application point, unity in the mission. Unity in the mission. Verse 12 to 13, But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady now. So they were weak, they were falling down, now his hands are steady until the going down of the sun. And what happens? Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Moses, Aaron, and Hur had a common goal, a common mission, to overcome and overwhelm the enemy. As Moses invoked the power of God on his own, he grew weary and tired, right? His hands dropped and the battle, we picture this battle swinging back and forth. When, when Moses, under his own power, is able to hold his hands up, Joshua is, is advancing against the enemy. But when his, his hands grow weary and tired and they're falling back down, Amalek is advancing against Joshua. But when the three worked together, the enemies of God's people were overcome. It says they were overwhelmed. And so, church, do we have unity in a common mission? Do we have unity in a common mission? Are we working together towards that mission? You may be asking the question what is our mission? What is this mission that we have? Simply put, this is our mission to make disciples. Okay, what's a disciple? A fully committed follower of Jesus who loves God by loving others. That's what a disciple is. You see, in the church, we can come up with fancy mission statements and vision statements and ministry distinctives and strategies and programs, but in the end... Are we a church that is focused and unified on the only mission statement from Scripture that truly matters? Here's the mission statement from Scripture that truly matters. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And then Jesus promises this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the mission statement that matters. Are we unified, church, in the spiritual battle to win souls with the power of the gospel and the power of God's Spirit to transform, this is what God's Spirit does, it transforms dead things into new lives. And all of this is framed, and I believe this passage ultimately pictures for us this, our third application point. It pictures supplication, prayer. pictures prayer. That's what's going on on the hill. Verse 11, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. You see, Moses' raised hands represents his calling upon the Lord. God, would you be at work? God, would you be with your people? God, would you bring us... Victory over this enemy. You see, we're reading the story in too shallow of a manner if we think that Moses went about this endeavor on his own. He's called by God to lead this people, to intercede on behalf of this people, to model for this people what true leadership looks like. Three men standing side by side with their hands raised together, calling upon God, please work, please intervene, please save us, God. Moses isn't just performing some magic trick with his staff. It's the power of God. He's invoking God's power to intervene in a situation. He's communicating with God. We call that prayer. We call that prayer. Paul instructs Timothy, and I love that the language matches up in 1 Timothy 2. Timothy just happens to be a disciple of Paul. That Paul empowers and Timothy obeys and listens to Paul's instruction. You see how that works in Scripture over and over and over again? Mature people investing into younger people, raising them up, sending them out on mission. Repeat until Jesus comes back. That's the process. Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men and women Should pray, lifting holy hands. Did you hear that? Lifting holy hands in prayer. Without anger or quarreling. In unity. The body of Christ, lifting holy hands together in unity. Praying. When discussing this passage, scholar Peter Enns reminds us that the focus is not on the battlefield. We don't get any details on the battlefield other than they're just kind of fighting back and forth. There's no detail about Joshua's bravery. There's nothing there. What does it focus on? It focuses on the hill. The battle is won on the hill. With hands raised, petitioning the true source of power, Yahweh, God, the Lord Almighty. People of God, people of God in this room, are you people of prayer? Are you on the hill praying for God's people? Are your knees calloused every night, leaning behind that bedside, calling out to God? If we are waging a spiritual battle, we must utilize the means that God has granted us. It's very simple. We must lay down the sword of the device of tongue, lay down the shield of defensiveness, lay down the fingers typing out ill-thought posts on Facebook and take up the posture of Moses and Aaron and her on the hill overlooking the battlefield together, holding up hands and crying out to the one who is the true source of power who can truly win the spiritual battle you face. You will lose every spiritual battle if you don't call upon the name of the Lord. But if you, we will stand together God will be with us. The sinner outside of this room is not our enemy. The darkness deceiving the sinner is. We face a vast mission field. We face, as God's Word says, a vast harvest. But His Word says the harvesters are few. We need more harvesters. We need more empowerment and obedience in the church. We need more unity in the mission. We need more prayer. Lastly, we can't miss Jesus in this passage. Jesus is the source of power and intercession. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the better Moses. One who's lifted and outstretched arms will provide power that never ends, an intercession that never ends for all eternity. It's our last point. Jesus has raised the arms, won the ultimate battle. Jesus' raised arms won the ultimate battle. The Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When John speaks of the Word, he's talking about Jesus Christ. God took on flesh, fully God and fully human, and he walked among us, and he lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. He lived in perfect obedience to the redemptive plan of God to the point that he gave up his life. Jesus went to the cross, and he raised his arms, and his hands were nailed to a tree. The Bible says, cursed is a man who hangs from the tree. And Jesus received the full wrath of God at the cross for the sins of humanity, for you and for me. He paid the price for our sin. He substituted himself in my place and your place, and he shed his blood. And the Bible says that he is a sufficient sacrifice to save all all of those who will place their faith and trust in his work at the cross. But here's a beautiful thing. Jesus didn't stay dead. He died on the cross. They put him in a grave. They rolled the stone over the entrance. But on the third day, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, Jesus raised from the dead. And thousands of people witnessed it. And the world has been changed forever because of our resurrected King Jesus. And Jesus ascended to heaven, and he empowered his disciples, whom we call the apostles, to take the word out and to preach with power. We see an example of that in Peter. He preached with power, and the word of God says that they were cut to the heart. And when they were cut to the heart, they said, Peter, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, each and every one of them. It's the power of God. And it wasn't Peter who did that. It was God's Holy Spirit. It was Jesus' raised arms nailed to a cross that saved Peter and radically transformed a coward into a bold proclaimer of the gospel. I need not say much more in support of seeing Jesus in this manner from within this passage. We'll let the Word of God speak from one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, Romans 8. Romans 8. Verses 31 to 39. Paul says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's how good of a father he is. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's people, followers of Jesus? It is God who justifies. What does justify mean? It's God who makes right. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Hear this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Church, the words of the accuser can no longer pierce the Father because Jesus is interceding. He is between us and God, saving us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. and. Church, Jesus has won the battle. And it is Him we proclaim. And it is Him each and every week at this church as we hear about His work on the cross that we remember.